Welcome to the February edition of the 21CC podcast, brought to you by the Chartered Institute of Building. I'm Rod Sweet, editor of Global Construction Review. CIOB's big three priorities in the coming years are quality and safety, sustainability and skills. So this month, Justin Stanton speaks to three young digital construction specialists who won medals in the World Skills UK National Finals. Professor Stuart Green is back with his take on what's stopping us from improving quality and productivity in the industry. But first, a big thanks to the CIOB's policy lead in Australia, Isaac Ryan, for introducing me to Hasia Atherton, who's on a mission to make the construction trades a beautiful career for women and men so they can lead independent and fulfilling lives. She launched that mission after almost losing hers. Then comes the deep, deep orthopedic and nerve pain. So every time I stood up, that feeling would shoot through my whole body, mixed with like very hot pins and needles in my legs and 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 shooting up my back to the point you'd almost feel it behind your eyeballs like this really hot stabbing pins and needles and then under all of that nerve pain was the next layer of that really deep aching thudding orthopedic pain as the bones started weight bearing again in 2017 hasia atherton was an international dressage champion training for the world equestrian games when her horse suddenly reared up vertically, throwing her to the ground. Then its rear legs gave out, and over half a metric ton of horse came down on top of her. It shattered her pelvis, fractured her hip and other bones, and damaged her nerves extensively. She woke from surgery nine hours later, lucky to be alive, but was told she could face the rest of her life in a wheelchair. That was never going to be the plan. 117 days later, she was able to sit up a bit in her hospital bed. Then she got to work, learning to stand again in the pool, her mind and body screaming at her to stop. I would get dizzy, I um, would get actual nausea and actually physically vomited sometimes from that vertigo feeling combined with the pain. But Hesia applied her mindset as an elite athlete to the challenge of getting back on her feet. When you're performing at any high level, you've got to push through a lot of discomfort. You've got to push through a lot of self-doubts. You've got to push through a whole range of different things. And I was very lucky to have worked with some uh, sports psychologists and everything like that and was be able to take that information and combine it with positive psychology. So I actually started becoming grateful for the experiences of failing. When I was learning to stand again in the hydro pool, I would fall over again and again and again and I would scramble to the surface of the water, kind of gasping for breath, wiping the water out of my eyes. And instead of feeling defeated and thinking, oh, I can't stand again, I would take that mindset of I'm grateful for falling because now I understand I was leaning a little bit too far to the left or too far forward or too far backwards. And that learning and that failing is actually making me a step closer because in dressage, if you hold on to stuffing up a movement, you'll stuff up all of the sequence following. So you had to kind of quickly learn, quickly reposition, quickly Uh, move on for the failure. And in hospital, I went deeper into understanding the psychology of failing and actually started to learn to fail fast and to fail forward. So every time I stood and felt pain, I would understand is that um, pain of my brain trying to protect me? Is it actual physical orthopedic based pain that I need to respect? Or is it 
Is it fear fueling that pain? She was in hospital for just under seven months. She never gave up. Five months after she was discharged, she could walk about a kilometre a day. Two years after that, she could run 5k. Then she would go on to run a half marathon. During her time in hospital, though, she settled on a new mission in life. In the world of trades in Australia, Hasia's family are nobility. Her great-great-grandfather Fred Atherton helped set up the Master Plumbers Association in 1891. From plumbing, the family business moved on to stainless steel fabrication, and now makes infection control equipment for hospitals and labs. She told me that before her accident she'd had the chance to work on the shop floor, and how weirdly inadequate she'd felt as soon as she donned a high-vis vest and steel-capped boots and tried to weld strip wires and use the CNC machine. Out of nowhere came the thought, I can't do this because of my gender. The other workers rushed to help, of course, and of course she got the hang of it. So, in hospital, while grappling with the psychology of pain and self-limitation, she started to think about what other women go through on the shop floor and construction sites, and she started interacting with tradesmen and women across Australia on social media, and understood why only 3% of tradespeople there are female. But in talking to tradesmen, she got a surprising insight. And that was the really interesting part, because a lot of men would start to say, well, uh, it's not that we don't feel that women belong on site, it's we don't feel we can protect them, there's pretty poor behaviour on site. Myself as a man gets bullied and harassed, so having a female on site experiencing the terrible behaviour that I experience, I wouldn't want my daughter to be in this environment. Um, the physical aspects of it all, how can we protect the females from the physical aspects? So there was this real kind of protection from a lot of the tradesmen that are like so therefore we defend the space and we don't want women in this space not because we don't want to work with them or we don't think that they're good enough to do the jobs it's I wouldn't bring my mother or my daughter or my sister into this environment so I started to realize there was a deep cultural issue that needed to be transformed in the trades so that's where kind of empowered women in trades all came about I wanted to set up an organization that could really craft an experience that allowed women to come into the industry in a safe environment where they could have that ability like I did on the factory floor to be able to fail at joining pipes or stripping wires or doing things like that and protecting them from that kind of external environment of, see, you failed at stripping those wires because you're a woman, therefore you don't belong in the industry, therefore you should give up on your apprenticeship, and therefore I'm right, women don't belong in, in the industry. And that's what we've done amazingly is created this safe space for women to be able to explore the trades, find their passion and joy for the trades, and then they're entering the industry deeply connected to what they're doing and therefore have the resilience to survive some of that external uh, pressure from the males. But on the flip side of the coin, we're doing a lot of that positive psychology work in the trade space industry to create psychological safety for men and women and to really start to shift this culture of bullying and harassment that we see uh, in Australia and globally in, in the trades. Hasia set up Empowered Women in Trades, or EWIT, in late 2020. It connects women who are interested in a trades career with companies who are prepared to give them a safe space to see what it's all about, with a view to signing up as an apprentice or even getting a job.
we create and craft immersive experiences for women to be able to come and experience the construction industry in a psychologically and physically safe environment. And then we connect them with like-minded employers that are doing the good work to transform their culture. So those employers will be able to support the woman to actually thrive. And the employers that we work with aren't just box ticking, pink washing. These are employers that are already starting to do the hard work to make sure they've got female uniforms, safe toilet facilities on site, um, career progression plans in place for women as well, so that you can find your passion in the industry and stay in the industry for life. So far, EWIT has introduced more than 5,000 women, ranging in age from teens to women in their 50s to trades work in construction and manufacturing. Some 20 construction firms have allied themselves to the scheme. Hasia says that for women, the experience can be transformational. It takes just one day on site with friendly people for outsiders to get used to the strange world of construction. Then that fear starts coming away. They start to find their confidence. And you see that even in one day, the women come on the site, they're standing in the corner, they're feeling really awkward in their steel cap boots. They're kind of like walking like ducks and going like, this is really uncomfortable. They're in their high vis. They feel everyone's looking at them. And by just one day on being on a construction site, they have so much more confidence. They're walking with their head held high. They've learned some new language and, and different things like that. Uh, that They're engaging in the banter on site or creating their own banter and everything. And you can just feel the fear step away and the confidence step in. And then this next step is connecting them with those mentors that are going to help them work out whether electrical is the right trade for them or plumbing's the right trade for them. So we showcase at least three different career pathways into the industry. Uh, so they might have a plumbing, electrical and a carpentry experience in that one day. And then having those kind of sponsors and mentors to get them ready to submit a resume or a cover letter um, that is appropriate for the trades. But that also said, like, after them being on site, connecting with the trades for the day, often there is no resume or cover letter. They're like, you smashed it. We've got a position. Do you want to start next week? Hasia's mission is to raise the level of female representation in the trades from 3% now to 30% in 2030. The academic literature suggests that that's the tipping point for a cultural shift. Everyone that's listening to this, let's make trades the human industry. Let's make construction the human industry where humans are just drawn to the industry and can thrive in our human skill sets. 30% in six years seems a tall order. But remember, this is Hasia Atherton we're talking to. If a horse didn't stop me, nothing's going to stop me. You know, if, if having a horse sit on me didn't stop me, uh, transforming 3% to 30%, that's walk in the park. Thank you, Hasia. That's a mission we can all get behind. Now, here's Justin with an update from the Skills Olympics. Competition improves the breed, Ford used to claim of its motorsport activities. Does the saying hold true of digital construction? Digital construction is one of five construction disciplines, alongside electrical installation, landscaping, plumbing and horticulture, that featured in last November's World Skills UK National Finals in Manchester. Those who perform well at this annual competition have the chance to represent Great Britain at the biennial World Skills event, the Vocational Skills Olympics for Young People. 
Over two days in Manchester last November, Rebecca Over from New College Lanarkshire and a BIM technologist at JM Architects secured the bronze medal. Tom Bowles from Sheffield Hallam University and an architectural technologist at Architectural and Engineering Practice Hadfield Corkwell Davidson scooped the silver medal. Callum Kearney from New College Lancashire, an assistant architectural technologist at Innovate Homes, emerged triumphant with the gold medal. I caught up with the three medalists over Zoom. How was the competition for you? Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, I think there was a lot of prep work beforehand. Um, from starting of just even entering, doing the uh, qualifier, to actually the day of the competition, uh, which we got to travel down to Manchester. Um, so I think it was really good um, experience in general of the actual days of competing, as well as the social um, aspects of it. Um, as we got to work as a, like, um, afterwards, spend time as a team and whatnot. But no, it was really good. It was um, a few wee challenging wee moments, but... At the end of the day, it was yeah, it was really good. Enjoyed it. Tom, what about you? Yeah, it was um, it was a great experience. Um, great exposure as well. I think it exposed you to a lot of things you don't come across in both uni and work practice. I think a lot of work practice is so niche to whatever practice you're working in or whatever role you're in. Whereas this was very very topical, um, as designed by Balfour Beatty. Um, and yeah, just unique and great exposure and a great experience overall, especially for a young person. Callum, what about you? Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic experience. Obviously, starting all the way back in February with pre- preliminary rounds, then obviously the national qualifier in June to then obviously be a finalist in Manchester. It was great. Um, it was a fant- fantastic learning curve. Um, it really obviously accelerated. Um, knowledge and skill, especially from the national qualifier right through to the the final, um, just getting a lot of hours of practice and learning things that you wouldn't wouldn't have picked up uh, any other day, any other uh, any other skills. The digital construction category was sponsored by Autodesk and Balfour Beatty. Tom and Rebecca gave me more detail about the challenge they faced. So yeah, it was over two days. The kind of design we were going through was a primary school um, and the first part of it was introduced back in the national qualifier um, not that we were told it would kind of continue on in the final but it was the larger part of the primary school which was adapted from a Balfour Beatty design which makes it so accurate and topical that it's a literal design they've done um, it's kind of tweaked obviously for exposure to the public um, uh, there's multiple kind of steps you have the architectural steps you have the structural steps um, and you kind of do a bit of both on both days. And then on the kind of second day, you go through and you start looking at clash detection, start seeing what's wrong, and then you look at visual inspections. Um, so just doing kind of um, jobs that are very, very needed. And yeah, the kind of jobs you do in practice, um, but exposing you and teaching you how to do them as efficiently and quickly and accurately as possible. And we also worked from a BEP, like that's the main thing over the two days. So it was like picking off knowledge and whatnot that you would use in industry, naming conventions to BIM standards and whatnot. What does it mean to each of you to come away with a medal, Rebecca? Yeah, no, I was delighted. Um, it was, I mean, it was a shock for myself because I didn't think I'd done as well as I'd hoped. So the fact that I got a medal, I was over the moon. Um, I was very emotional. <laughs> um Crying all the way up to the stage, but no, it was it was just fantastic because 
um, I was just happy to be there with everybody else and everybody, all our teammates were such strong competitors and I was just happy for whoever won. So to actually get my, my name to be called up to the top three, I was just delighted. So yeah, no, it was, it was amazing. Tom? Uh, yeah, very similar. Yeah, it was, it was a shock as well. Um, I think just the way the competition went, we all knew it was going to be it was going to be close. Um, so you kind of think, oh yeah, same as um, I'll be, I'll be happy forever. And you also um made surprisingly good friends as well over the two days and over the training periods leading up to it. We all got um surprisingly close, and we all got on really really well. So you kind of lose sight of the competitive aspect, and it just becomes fun. Uh, and then suddenly, yeah, you you win a medal, and you think, oh well, <laughs> that went very well. But yeah, no, uh, definitely rewarding after hard work and effort put into it leading up to it. Callum? Uh, fantastic. Um, I won. Um, I was going into it hoping, really hoping to just be a medalist, to just get recognition, uh, to actually go on and win. Um, it just felt great. I've never actually had the chance to win anything before and to have this competition and... To go up and stay, I was so nervous, but it was so great at the same time. I didn't really know how to feel at the time, but <laughs> now looking back on it, I'm obviously so happy now. Unfortunately for Rebecca and Callum, they'll be too old for the 2026 World Skills final in Shanghai, leaving Tom to continue to compete for a place on the 26 GB squad. It's a very big commitment uh, to be planning for well, the next two and a bit years. Um, especially with kind of ongoing career and getting into, so I've only, I've only recently kind of got a job through a placement. So that's going one direction. This is going another. So some big decisions, but definitely it's an amazing opportunity to be exposed to and have a chance to look into. Let's finish at the beginning. How did our winning trio find themselves in digital construction? Um, well, I joined quite a lot later. I'd done pharmacy for the first eight years. Um, and I was introduced to it by a friend. Um, I didn't know it was something you could do. I thought you could only be an architect. Um, so when I was introduced, the fact is that I could go to college to study um, and that there was it was a bit more of a more accessible route into the industry. Um, I definitely jumped at the chance at it and wasn't sure how I was going to do it. I'd been out of education for quite a, a number of years. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, once I've seen it, I applied for it, and it's one of the best things I've ever done. So, yeah. Tom? Yeah, so I was looking to do engineering back when looking at uni courses a few years ago. Um, and so, same as Rebecca, I didn't know our kind of architectural technology and like all the digital construction side existed apart from architecture. Um, but I was interested in creativity and engineering, and just how things work, really. Uh, and then spoke to a family friend who was an architect and introduced me to, to technology uh, and then went on to go do a architectural technology degree at Sheffield Hallam and yeah was introduced to digital construction. Callum? Um, similar to Tom I went to do an engineering course and I didn't really enjoy it and then left and then I was really hoping to just get an apprenticeship and build my skills up that way I thought that'd be the best way to learn and progress Um, after a few years working as a labourer I was just get, I was getting to the point I was unsure what was I was applying for any apprenticeship. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then weirdly, just one day out the blue, my girlfriend messed me, showed me this course, architectural technology, never heard of it. And I just applied, thinking we'll, we'll see how it goes. Got in, um, then done the course, fantastic experience, fantastic learning. And then obviously you get introduced to the BIM and the digital construction side of it through the course and uh, through the course we've done, you can get 
your personal development award in BIM and we got all of that and then that allowed us to compete for this World Skills, but it was great. Congratulations and thanks to Rebecca, Tom and Callum. To find out more about what it's like to treat digital construction as a sport, head to bimplus.co.uk and key in the search term Bordeaux. There you'll find my interview with the gold medal winner from the Bordeaux World Skills Final of 2022. Thanks, Justin. Isn't it uplifting to hear young people excited about their future? Now, Stuart Green caused a stir when we had him on in November to preview the forthcoming second edition of his book on improving construction. It's out now, so we brought him back to do it again. Have you ever wondered why all the government reports telling the industry to modernise never seem to change anything? and actually seem to bear no relation at all to the way the industry even works? If so, you'll enjoy the second edition of Stuart Green's book, Making Sense of Construction Improvement, which is out now. Stuart worked as a civil engineer on site before becoming Professor of Construction Management at the University of Reading. The new edition covers the years of austerity, Brexit, and what he calls the perma-crisis gripping the industry, marked by a string of supposedly black swan events like collapsing Edinburgh schools, the Grenfell catastrophe, and the ruination of Carillion. The book's overarching theme is that the idea of modernisation itself has been used as a kind of propaganda to deflect attention away from what really stops us improving quality, safety and productivity. It's genius, because while nobody can really define what modern construction means, absolutely nobody wants to be seen as anti-modern. I mean, it's identity work. You know, who wants to portray themselves as being traditional? You know, it's old fashioned, traditional, it's yesterday's news. You know, everybody wants to be modern. Everybody wants to communicate a message to their superiors, to their clients, that they're modern. In fact, what modern means changes over time to suit the political agenda, Stuart says. It's interesting if you go back to the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, the notion of modernisation was seen to be synonymous with nationalisation. This was seen to be the only viable means of modernising the railways, of modernising the coal mining industry. Uh, and of course, there was much talk about it in the construction sector. You know, I remember as a, a young man with a full head of hair working on a construction site with a sticker on the cabin campaign against building industry nationalisation. You know, I remember that in my kind of working life. And so... Uh, what we understand as modernisation changes over time. What we end up with, with current uh, vogue for modernisation, is this beguiling narrative of technological optimism. There's always one new technology just over the horizon. You know, remember the days when BIM was going to solve all the industry's problems? OK, well, you know, people do fast, fantastic things with BIM. Great, you know, but it hasn't solved the kind of problems that I'm talking about, you know, the simple real things about what happens on site and the level of supervision the level of kind of motivation the incentives that are in place for people to do kind of quality kind of work the problems he's talking about include the phantom bricklayers of edinburgh so called because when nine tons of masonry fell at oxgang's school in 2016 which could easily have killed children nobody even knew who the bricklayers had been or what training or supervision they'd had what I talk about in the book 
is I tried to put that in a broader context, because this is not just the construction sector as it is. This is the construction sector as we have made it, as our generation has made it. And rather than blame adversarial people in the construction sector who are old fashioned, I rather point the finger at the policymakers. The critique in the book, you know, includes the Egan report, you know, which said very little, an intoxicating array of modern management ideas. The real message from the Egan report was the message from the incoming new Labour government that we're not going to revert to the demand management policies of previous Labour regimes. That was the message to construction boardrooms and everybody uh, breathed a sigh of relief. But what it did do, it legitimised the changes that had happened in the preceding 20 years. Okay, this kind of hollowing out of the construction sector, the adoption of the model of structural flexibility, whereby main contractors don't employ anybody, the systemic kind of reliance on the subcontractors. And part of the picture, I'm afraid, is the incentivization of self-employment through the tax and national insurance system. Okay, fragmentation didn't just happen. Okay, it's a result of previous policy decisions. Choices were made. We chose to privilege uh, labour market flexibility over control, supervision, quality and productivity. Those were the choices we make. And now we live with the unintended consequences of those decisions. He also takes aim at the faith we're supposed to have in modern methods of construction. When last year alone, five new modular schools in England had to be shut down and demolished because they were structurally unsound. Stewart says we still haven't learned the lessons of Ronan Point, the tower block built with prefabricated concrete panels that partially collapsed in 1968, just two months after opening, killing four people. Everybody talks about fantastic quality in precision engineering in the factory. Nobody talks about the problems of installing these components on site. Okay, uh, there's a kind of wave of the hand, oh, they're just bolted together on site, right? And look at Ronan Point, forensically deconstructed in 1986. You know, quality problems were horrendous. It was procured on a turnkey basis. There was no proper supervision. Bolts were missing. Ties were missing. Mortar beds for the panels were missing. The quality problems are absolutely horrendous. And many of these tower blocks were demolished within 15 years of construction because the cost of maintaining them was such as to make it entirely uneconomic. My worry is we're repeating the same mistakes again. Stuart thinks our blind faith in innovation is misplaced too. What we need instead is responsible innovation. I asked him what this means. It means doing your homework. It's about spending the money to do the research. It's about being absolutely certain before we start to utilise uh, new technologies, new materials into the fabric of the built environment. We're absolutely sure about the performance of these components. And I'm afraid in recent years that's not been the case. You know, for example, the ACM composite cladding panels on Grenfell. You know, what particular mode of innovation was it that let, led us to clad buildings in material that's highly kind of flammable. And so what I mean by responsible innovation is not that. He notes that after Grenfell, people were quick to blame the contracting sector. But he blames government for degrading regulations. 
you know, we like our regulation light touch. We like our regulation to uh, facilitate innovation. We don't want to constrain people from coming up with innovative solutions. The, the war on red tape that prevailed, moving needless regulation. We've kind of rather lost sight that regulation is there to protect the public good. There's huge kind of confusion about the building regulations. There's huge confusion in the way they're kind of enforced. Part of the story lies with building control. And we, we had some of these poor guys kind of interrogated during the inquiry. Under-resourced for kind of decades, too much work on their plate, not being able to give a, a fair crack at what they're supposed to do in terms of compliance. But the big thing about Grenfell and kind of building regs relates to the class zero in terms of cladding you know, which was just frankly ambiguous in terms of the guidance. And we'll see what happens when the inquiry kind of finally kind of finishes. But there's lots of villains that you can typecast around Grenfell, and not all of them are in the construction industry, I'm afraid. OK, obvious question. What can we do? Well, I, I take the idea of industrial strategy kind of seriously. The construction sector is so important across a whole range of policy areas that it deserves to have a coherent industrial strategy. And these words pop up every now and again. You can see this kind of idea of industrial strategy kind of struggling to survive throughout the kind of noughties. Uh, the ridiculous report that came out in 2013, Construction 2025. The best thing about the report is the photograph on the cover. But it was directly born from uh, the construction sector whinging at the government that in the uh, year years of austerity, the government wasn't doing enough to support the construction sector. And so what did the government do? It produced a nice glossy report that was pretty content free. Uh, it had lots of stirring uh, words about leadership and lots of nice photographs. We move forward to the Theresa May era. She was quite fond of the idea of industrial strategy. And these things can change the debate a little bit. They can change the narrative. I remember a skills report, future skills report, came out by the Construction Leadership Council in July 2019, making a big play on the need to incentivise direct employment through the procurement system. Uh, Theresa May disappeared, that idea disappeared, okay, nobody ever talks about it again. It's a crazy world that we live in. Right, well we'll see what happens after the next election, but in the meantime, is there anything else? Uh, read the book, okay, it will delight and annoy people in equal measures, okay, but it will generate debate and it will generate opinion. And the book in no small way is me giving vent to 30 years worth of frustration with what I've seen happening around me. Thanks, Stuart. I've been reporting on the industry for more than 20 years, and it certainly helped me make sense of it. That's all we have time for this month. We hope you found it interesting. If you like the podcast, tell others by rating it wherever you found it. Give us a mention on social media with the hashtag 21ccpodcast. You can email us on 21cc at atompublishing.co.uk. Thanks for listening, and have a great month.